Hi, everyone. This is David Cohen, and I'm here with my amazing co-host, Brad Feld. Hey, Brad. And this is the Give First podcast. And in the startup world, Give First means simply trying to help anyone, especially entrepreneurs, without any expectation of getting anything back. So we'll be talking to mentors and founders about what Give First looks like in action and how it makes great entrepreneurship possible. We polled everyone and they said consistently that their favorite part of the show was the legal mumbo jumbo. So here it is. The following discussion is an expression of personal opinion and does not represent the opinion of Techstars or any company we discuss. Our conversations for informational purposes only, including any mention of securities or funds. This is not legal business investment or tax advice and is not intended for use by any investor. Certain of Techstars funds own or may own in the future securities in some of the companies discussed in this podcast. Got it? Welcome to today's episode of the Give First podcast. This is Brad Feld. I'm here with you today with Janine Davis. Janine is a partner at an executive coaching firm called Evolution. She's a longtime executive coach and facilitator and has been involved in a number of Techstars programs, including Techstars LA and Techstars Anywhere. Janine, thanks for joining. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Just maybe give a few minutes background on your story and how you got here. I know that you started off in management consulting. So how did you sort of make your way from management consulting to being an executive coach? It's a very circuitous path I took. I actually started off in engineering, was a software developer myself back in the days. I'm not going to tell you what I coded in because it will totally date me. I hope it was something good like, you know, D-Base or Paradox. Okay, you made me tell. It's COBOL. Shh, don't tell anybody. <laughs> when I was in college, there were the cards, but we're not going to talk about that either. So I spent the first portion of my career in technology. And then uh, when, when I left technology, I was actually working at DirecTV when they were a startup, which was crazy town. And I had my babies back to back. And especially at that time, very hard to be a female executive in tech trying to balance that with babies. So I had always been sort of a natural matchmaker and gotten a lot of people jobs and connected people that way. And so I thought, you know what, why don't I try tech recruiting and see if that provides me more flexibility Worst case scenario, if I hate it, I'll get myself a new job. And uh, I ended up spending 20 years in that world. And seven of those, I owned my own recruiting agency and was entirely focused on Los Angeles startups. So that's where I did the recruiting. So I've been in the startup world forever and I love it. I guess probably about 10 years ago, I realized that becoming an executive coach was really why I was put on earth. I started to do a lot of pro bono coaching, primarily for female founders. I'm on the board of an organization called Women Founders Network. The more I did it, I'm like, I have to do this. So I slowly but surely, you know, got certified in coaching and made my way to where I am now. You've been in LA for a long time and you've seen the evolution of the LA startup community, certainly pre-internet bubble through the internet, now sort of you know, pre-financial crisis, Web 2.0, resurgence, kind of post-financial crisis. Tell us a couple of stories or maybe a story from uh, the early 2000s. Like what did LA feel like then versus now? Well, it felt a little bit like the wild, wild west back then. You know, these massive growth companies and mostly being led by really young people, smart, but very, very young and not necessarily super experienced, rapid growth. It was sort of like, it was crazy. It was very chaotic. And then everything died, or quite a few of the organizations died. And then, you know, there was this lull. And when things started to happen again, 
the nature of it was very different. At that point, you know, I was doing recruiting. So I would, in the first version, you know, I'd get job requirements for a CEO or a CTO that had maybe five years of experience and things of that sort. In the second phase, it was much more about, you know, experience and solidity and business acumen and things like that. So really different from that standpoint, more structured, more mature. Does that make sense? It does. Tell me a crazy recruiting story from the internet bubble era for the old timers in our audience. Oh, let's see. There's a couple of them. Okay. One was a company in the legal startup world that was recruiting for an executive. And the final part of their process was to send a handwriting analysis sample to a rabbi in Israel. And if that rabbi didn't approve of the handwriting, I don't know what the criteria was, but they would not get hired. That was slightly unusual. There were also, this happened a lot where there were a couple of clients that would always use a just find me somebody out of Google phrase that happened very, very often. And the ironic thing is it was a person I found for them that was really just an incredible software engineer. I'm not going to name the client, but very great software engineer. They ended up passing on the person and guess who hired him? Google. 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 <laughs> exactly. So I just think that's a, I mean, it wasn't funny at the time. It's funny in retrospect. That's awesome. So you're coaching now and, and maybe for everybody in the audience, describe in your mind what executive coaching is and how your path from recruiting has helped you with executive coaching. Executive coaching, I really feel is just like it, it's an enablement for a leader to become the best leader they can be. And through that, for their organizations to really have the most impact possible. I mean, it sounds sort of like, I'm not quite sure what the word is, but it sounds a little bit vague, but I really feel like it can be this transformational process for people to become more self-aware and to grow and to evolve and to in turn, you know, pass it along to the people. So you're making the most impact in the, in the organization. And in terms of recruiting, I mean, it, it applies in so many ways. I mean, just being in people operations and seeing what motivates people, why they make the choices they're making and why they quit, most importantly, is really valid. I did this completely unscientific study of data collection where I would ask you know, thousands of people that I talked to why they were quitting. And almost unilaterally, there were two main things. Either they felt no sense of purpose or they hated their boss. There were a couple of other reasons, but that was kind of it. And so that information, you know, that always feeds into my coaching because that's sort of the reason why leaders need to get coached and why you need to walk the talk. Those are the reasons that people leave. If I'm a founder of a company, first company I'm founding, and we're a couple founders and half dozen people, and you know, my, my instinct is, well, that sounds good, but I, I don't need that yet. I don't need a coach yet. What what would be your argument to that founder why they would benefit from coaching? I truthfully feel you don't need it. It's a question of getting there faster, which, you know, goes along with your book, right? You are able to get to your goals in a much quicker and more concentrated fashion. The other key reason to do it is the more you can start with leadership development and building your culture intentionally early, the less headaches and cleanup you're going to have to deal with later. It's pretty early on that the way that the founders interact and whether they walk and talk and things of that sort, you only have to get to like six or seven people before it will really start to derail things if you're not deliberate about it. So it's very important to do as an early discipline. When I think about 
therapy, which is different than coaching, and, and I describe it many times in, in different contexts as something that is, has characteristics that are similar but very different. It's well understood that if you're a therapist for person A, you should not also be a therapist for the significant other of person A. So unless you're providing therapy for the couple, providing therapy for both partners would be a no-no. How does that relate in coaching? If you're coaching an individual, do you feel comfortable with the executive team? Do you often choose an executive team versus an individual? How do you manage those pieces as a coach? It really depends on the situation, like pretty much everything in coaching. So if there's really a lot of headbutting going on between executives or founders, you know, they really need marriage counseling, essentially. Usually I feel like it's better for each, let's take an example of two founders, that each has their own coach just for feelings of safety, if nothing else. And then sometimes there'll be maybe joint sessions with both coaches and both founders. In some situations, I've definitely done, you know, coaching and executive offsite type things and everybody's there. And I've also done one-on-one time, but that's usually a better approach if they're pretty well-oiled machine. There's not a huge amount of conflict. It really depends on the, the health of the relationship. Let's switch gears a little and spend uh, time with Techstars and some of your experience with Techstars. How did you get involved in Techstars? When was your first program? And go back in time and talk about the experience that you had in that first program cycle as you got exposed to it. Yeah, definitely. So I I got involved through Anna Barber in LA, who I'm happy to now call a friend. And we met just through being in the LA startup world. This is my fourth year with LA. It was an amazing experience. You know, it's the first time I got involved with Techstars. At that time, I didn't actually go through Mentor Madness because I think I joined a little bit late into the program. But I did a workshop for the cohort around hiring and culture. So it was great just to interact with all the founders from that standpoint. And then we also, the next year, started doing a whole pro bono coaching engagement for all of her cohorts. So we're heading into the fourth year of that. So basically, every one of their founders or founding team members is assigned a coach, and we do pro bono coaching for them. So we just kicked off that this year, and we have 25 people in her current class getting coached, and about 20 of our coaches raised a hand. So that's definitely give first. Wow. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, it's it's an amazing program. Like, it's incredible. The founders are so open and appreciative and they get a lot done in not a lot of time. You're also involved in uh, Techstars Anywhere. I am. So I got involved with Techstars Anywhere a couple of years ago. I just finished the second year with them and it was great and so incredibly timely, you know, to be involved with a group that's done completely remotely because how great for all of Techstars that they have a proven methodology now to make it all work. It was amazing. I love the fact that that program allows people from anywhere to join, literally. So it really promotes and increases diversity. You know, some people are not able to be in or move to a city where one of the programs is, or their co-founders are all all over the country. So I love it. Had a great time, gotten to go to Boulder a couple times, and it's been really, really fun. Tell us a story about one of your favorite companies from one of the programs and how you engaged with them as a mentor and some of the things that, not so much that they learned from you, but even maybe that you learned from them. I'm going to pick Liquid, which is one of the Los Angeles program's cohort from last year. I've known the founder for a while just through the LA world, but I picked her as sort of my coaching client during this pro bono arrangement we did. And I've since continued uh, coaching her. And 
I think what's been so impactful about it is like, she's so willing to do the work and to do the best possible job as a founder she can. It's just a dream client for a coach, somebody that will go there. And it's really also evidenced in the company, you know, how she's growing and how she's structuring the the group and how she's leading her people. So it's really amazing just to see uh, how it shows up in, in the group. It's been such a joy to work with her. How has your work changed in the time of COVID? Coaching, I instinctively think of as a very personal experience. Yeah. And suddenly you're now living in a video conferencing world. How's it shifted and what are you doing differently as a coach in your business? Thankfully, you know, you can do coaching over Zoom fairly easily. The actual one-on-one coaching, it's a little bit of a transition, but not not bad. But what is very different is I do probably at least 50% of my time is spent facilitating leadership training and leading offsites and things like that. So that changed very significantly. Those are always done in person. And there's a particular client that we're doing a company-wide leadership training for, you know, these large cohorts of their leaders. And we basically had about two weeks to completely redesign a program from being held in person to virtual. So we started using different technologies like Mural to do some of the interactive pieces. And we just had to shift the entire program so that it was digestible. So instead of, you know, we're not going to have somebody sitting on Zoom for six hours, we broke it up into nice, like, bite-sized chunks and just had to go through that redesign process. So that was, that was really different. And for the most part, it works very well. There's a little bit of a missing link, you know, with the connection and in person, but it's actually pretty, it's working well. As you've been Living in, I like to call it the time of COVID. I'm sure somebody will eventually come up with a better phrase than that. All right. And working with all of these different executives, especially in some of these fast-growing companies, mm-hmm. what are some of the pressures that you're seeing that people are under that are different and new uh, that are emergent? Well, there's a few things that stand out and are pretty common that we're seeing across the board. So one is being able to balance empathy with accountability Things need to get done, and people are in situations where many of them have small children at home. They're trying to juggle taking care of their kids and educating their kids. At the same time, they're running their company. So it's really been a struggle for some of the execs to figure out what the tipping point is. And, you know, there's not a right answer. So it's really a question of doing your best to find the balance point. Self-care may have gone a little bit by the wayside, as you can imagine. So there's not necessarily a lot of time spent on things like meditation and exercise, and some people aren't eating as well as they used to. So that's something that's really taken a fairly big hit. And, you know, I think the other thing is that in times of stress, our triggers, our reactive behaviors, the things that always tend to happen when we're not in a great place become worse right? They're much more susceptible to those parts of ourselves. So there tends to be a little bit more conflict, a lot more anxiety, things like that. I was on a call recently, a board call, and one of the board members who's COO of a large company, she described the whole company, but then especially the leadership team as being crispy. Crispy. And the sort of notion that everybody was trying really hard and there had been plenty of resilience sort of over the last couple of months as people adapted to this reality that we're in. But things were starting to fray on the edges. It's interesting you say that because in our training programs, we always do check-ins because we're weirdo coaches, right? And we did one where we asked the participants to describe themselves in terms of a 
cooking term. And I would say like 90% of them were like burnt, crisp, um, you know, were done. They were, they were all along the lines of, of crispy. Let's do a check-in right now for both of us as an example. I'll let you facilitate, but then you have to also answer. So how, how would you do a check-in if sort of giving a way of doing that? I really like doing sentence stems for check-ins. They're especially effective if you are working with a lot of introverts. And rather than just saying, how are you, which tends to lead to a lot of crickets, you might say something like, the thing I'm most grateful for today is. That's my sentence stem for you. The thing I am most grateful for today is that my wife, Amy, has been feeding me all day. Yeah, very nice. And the reason that I'm most grateful for that is I am very tired feeling. Didn't feel very good this morning when I woke up for some reason. I'm not sick, just tired. And I told her that, and I'm just grateful that her response when I woke up feeling kind of cranky and crabby and not very good was instead of being annoyed that she had to spend the day with the person that was started the day off being a little crabby, was that she she fed me. So I'm very grateful for that. Nice. How about you? What are you grateful for? So the thing I am most grateful for is in the other room are both of my children who are real humans now. They're 24 and 25, and they're working at my place, and... I'm incredibly grateful that, first of all, I have kids that like me. I mean, that's pretty big, right? And I've chosen to come over and be with me. So I am incredibly grateful we're healthy and that I get to see them a lot. That's awesome. Almost as good as the food fairy showing up regularly throughout the day. I don't know. I think it might, I don't know, it might be a little, it might be a little bit better. <laughs> Slightly. But I like food fairy. That's good. The thing about check-ins, can I say a little bit more about it? Please do. Yeah, it's really, especially right now when we're, physically disconnected from each other. And a lot of people are carrying, you know, an enormous amount of anxiety. I mean, it's not just COVID. We also have the social unrest. We also have a pending election. We also have bombs going off. I mean, there's a lot going on and many people are super sensitive, myself included, to all of it. And so by starting any kind of a meeting with something like a check-in, it really allows people to just kind of state what's going on with them so they can be more present in the room. Amy and I have a personal rule that only one of us can have a meltdown at a time. That's a great rule. It's an excellent strategy. We each have meltdowns. Our guiding light as a couple is if one of us is having a meltdown, the other person doesn't. Yeah, excellent. Again, in this moment where you've got an executive team of a half dozen people or so and a CEO, not with a rule like that, but as a coach sort of saying, okay, everybody's under a ton of stress. When one of your colleagues is melting down or it appears that one of your colleagues is starting to spiral negative, how can the other members of the leadership team in that moment, knowing that they're also under stress, of course, but how can they help that person? Mm -hmm. What popped in my head as you were saying that is somebody sort of call a timeout and just maybe bring it up in a delicate way, not like, what's wrong with you? But, you know, it seems like the tensions are rising in the room. Maybe we need to take a step back and maybe literally take a time out for a minute. And then, then you can have go have a private conversation. And it might be in the room, just naming it sometimes reduces the anxiety level to the point where you can get back into conversation with each other. That's uh, also for the meditators out there is taken for meditation, which is as you're sitting and meditating, when you have thoughts come through your head, simply labeling the thought, thought is very powerful. So naming what you see is going on. Exactly. It's a great technique. It's very uh, anxiety reducing. 
So you've been a woman in tech for many years now, 25 years plus. How have you seen things change or have you seen things change in the last three to five years? Hmm. Well, I'm thinking about, you know, women in tech and then also really women in tech, meaning in engineering. So uh, I co-founded a group here in L.A. called Women in the Tech Part of Tech, which is the very small handful of women CTOs and CPOs based in L.A. And, you know, I'd like to say that I feel as though a lot of things have changed, but they sort of haven't. Just like when I was in tech back in the dark ages, really difficult time just voicing what they want to voice. So for example, there was a, an executive in this group who she would have these great ideas. She made it a practice to tell her male counterpart what the ideas were so he could bring them to the table because that's the only way they would get done, which is not great. So I haven't seen enormous shifts. I feel like there's more quantity. There's more, a little bit more in terms of women in technology, but not huge changes. Same thing with venture. You know, you know the stats on how much funding goes to female founders, not much. So there's progress in some ways, but in terms of actual cold, hard cash, not super significant. If you had one piece of advice for the men in the audience about what they could do to be better male advocates for women in the context of tech, what would that advice be? What popped to my mind is to assume excellence, to come from a standpoint of assuming the woman is successful, smart, etc. from a standpoint of what are your successes versus prove to me why you're not going to mess this up. Super helpful. All right, let's shift into for the last couple of minutes, a quick fire round, which is something that David and I have shamelessly ripped off from Harry Stebbings, who runs a 20-minute VC podcast and is one of our inspirations for trying to be, I would say, not terrible podcasters. Hopefully someday we'll be really good like Harry is. So I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions and just sub 30, sub 60 second answers. Just quick, whatever comes to mind. Okay. But more than just the noun is the answer. Give me a description. Got it. You've been in LA a long time. If you could live in one other place on the planet, where would it be? Ooh. Oh, yeah. Okay, I know. There is a tiny little village in Italy called Cortona, which is right on the Umbrian-Tuscan border. It's an old medieval town, and I would definitely live there. They have some incredibly good olive oil. Question number two. I know the answer to this because I looked at your LinkedIn. Dogs or cats? Oh, yes. Dogs. I mean, I like cats. It's just dogs. The setup for this question is, of course, your LinkedIn has listed as one of your skills that you're a crazy dog lady. So actually, let's shift out of quick fire. Tell us more about that. Well, yeah, I've always been a crazy dog lady. I grew up with dogs. They're all snow dogs. I've always had snow dogs, which is ironic considering where I live. I actually had the opportunity to get involved with a nonprofit called Target Zero, which I kind of joke around that we were we had an exit because a large animal funder called Maddie's Fund ended up essentially acquiring us before our founder proved out the theory. But basically, you know, what she did is she found a city that had gotten their shelters to zero kill, deconstructed the process, and then reconstructed it in a way that where we could go into cities and get them to zero kill. And we had just incredible success. So we were acquired, and it makes me happy because my whole goal is to have no animals in shelters. Still a crazy dog lady. My, my puppies, unfortunately, both passed away. and One of them just a couple of months ago. So I'm sorry. We just had a dog uh, pass away too yeah. a couple of weeks ago. So I'm giving you uh, massive dog empathy love in this you. moment. Thank you. Yeah, it's really hard. Although I have adopted a squirrel. 
that <laughs> I'm very friendly. It's his name is Penelope. Penelope the squirrel. That's awesome. Well, we don't, uh, we probably have squirrels here somewhere, but we have lots of rabbits here in Colorado. Oh, there you go. We have so many rabbits that we can't adopt them because they just are everywhere. Uh, someday in the distant future, one could imagine a situation where somebody would travel to LA and be able to go out to dinner at a restaurant somewhere. What would be that restaurant? What would be your recommendation for somebody coming to your town? You know, I think I would pick a restaurant called Nelson's, which is part of a resort down here called Terranea. It's in Palos Verdes, and it is on the cliffs overlooking the ocean, and it's just spectacularly beautiful. When you're there, you don't think you're in L.A. It looks almost like you're on a a Mediterranean coastline. Talk about one charity or one philanthropic organization you did a moment ago, but give us a, a different one that you're enthusiastic about, supportive of, and why. Oh, that's hard to pick. Well, I, I have to pick this. So Women Founders Foundation, I am on the board of Women Founders Network, which supports uh, early stage female founders with less than a million in institutional funding. We have a sister org called Women Founders Foundation, whose mission is to educate young women and girls on entrepreneurship and investing. So we're really trying to sort of grow the next generation of entrepreneurs and investors. And we've it's an amazing program. Um, people like Therese Tucker, will bring all the girls in and, and she'll tell her founder story for Blackline, things like that. So it's just an incredible program. Well, thanks for highlighting that. We will make a contribution from the Techstars Foundation. Well, thank you. Uh, to thank that you. one. And it's right on mission because the goal of the Techstars Foundation is to increase diversity in entrepreneurship. So love to learn more about it and we'll do that offline. But thanks for bringing that up. And Janine, thanks for spending half hour with me today. This was uh, this was great. And hopefully everybody out there in the world gets to know you. Uh, what's the best way for people to find you or connect with you if they'd like to? Probably LinkedIn is the best way or Twitter. Except my, my handle is kind of weird on Twitter. It's Janine or D. J-A-N-I-N-E-E-R-D. A little bit strange. Any story behind that that we should end with? You know, just Nina is my nickname and just seemed to work at the time. And that was when I set up a Twitter, not necessarily for professional reasons. And I'm like, okay. And I, you know, I just kept it. I really want to thank you for having me on. It was so great to get a chance to chat with you. Well, really enjoyed it. Thank you for everything you've done for Techstars and appreciate all the efforts you do with entrepreneurs and execs in your coaching practice. Yes, thank you. You as well. Thanks a lot for listening to the show today. We'd love to hear your feedback, ideas, or who you'd like to hear next on Give First. And please leave a rating and review, ideally a good one, and reach out anytime to podcasts at techstars.com or on Twitter, I'm at David Cohen. See you next time. Don't forget, Give First.